Hey, you're listening to the Encounter Church podcast. To learn more about Encounter Church, visit us at ecdenver.org, or you can find us on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. I want you to get out your Bibles or your phones, and I want you to to turn as a place marker to Matthew's Gospel, the 24th chapter, and we're going to get there in a little bit. Now, I want to just explain, some of you weren't here last week, we began this series uh, with the traditional you know, message of, of hope. The first week of Advent is hope. And so last week, we, we lit the hope candle. And uh, if I don't break this or light the uh, plastic on fire, I'll be doing great. And uh, that's the hope candle. And we lit that. But I, I did a slightly different nuance. As I was researching this message and researching Advent in the concept, the word means, you know, to anticipate or the coming. And in the modern context, you almost always hear Advent as a time of preparation for the birth of Jesus. You know, in fact, you see the Advent calendars are all focused around that sort of, you know, uh, courier and Ives kind of, you know, American uh, holiday theme. But when you actually look at the history of Advent, which has been around about 1,500 years, when it began and for many, many hundreds of years, it was, it was a, a teaching about preparing for not the birth of Christ, but the return of Christ. Not the coming of Jesus, but the second coming of Jesus. Okay? And so when we studied, we studied hope, we studied in the context of how does the second coming and the, and the assurance of that second coming birth hope in our hearts? You know, what does it do for us spiritually? And in a similar way, the second week is, is traditionally either prophecy or, or it's peace. This morning, we're going to talk about how Jesus' second coming and preparing for his second coming really addresses the issue of peace that God wants every Christian to have in their heart. He wants us to live in a place of peace. So w- with that in mind, I want us to begin, and you don't have to turn there, but there's a, there's a scripture in 1 Timothy 2.5. I want to just read it to you. And it says this, For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, most of us who are Christians, we embrace that, right? We accept that. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There, no one can come to the Father except through him. But I want you to consider Jesus in the context of being a mediator. And and think about this. Unless there is a conflict, there is no need for a mediator. Unless we're having a fight, I don't need a peacemaker. Jesus is the prince of peace. You know, and so the issue is, what is the conflict that exists between men, people, humanity, and our creator God? What's going on and why did Jesus has to come, have to come as a mediator? Good question. Well, c- consider this. What is the source of the conflict? It's the result of our insisting on living like we want to rather than how God directs. Every single human being hates to be told what to do. Come on, that's the truth. We don't want to be told what to do. We don't want to be told how to drive. We don't want to be told what to eat, where, sleep. We don't want to be told what to do. We are in our, our humanity. We are rebellious against God. We, we just resent it. And, and what happens is that we insist on that and we move away from the security of following God the power of his grace, and we take ourselves out of a blessed place and put ourselves into a difficult place. 
And, and the perfect illustration of this, in my mind, is the nation of Israel. Israel was selected by God. He, they are the chosen people of God. He took them out of slavery. He took them out of bondage. He said, you know, I don't want you to be slaves. I don't want you to be oppressed. I want you to be free. And I want you not just to be free, but I want to put you someplace where you can prosper and thrive and be at peace and be secure and be safe. And I want to demonstrate my love for all humanity by how I treat you. And again, pretty good deal, right? And if you are a Jewish person, you, yeah, you, amen, thank you, God. And they experienced incredible blessings from God. And yet, yet within a few short generations of, of the creation of Israel and, and its apex under David and Solomon, you see Israel going from this incredibly secure, powerful nation to being just a, a poor vestige of what they were intended to be. Rather than a blessed place, they were, just, they were just existing. They were under oppression. They were back, not in slavery, but they were back under a different empire. But at, the, at, at that point, God sent a prophetic word. And he came to Israel despite their sin, which created this whole situation. And a prophet by the name of Isaiah came, and this is what it says in Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 5. God speaking to me. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. Yes, the Lord has punished her twice over all her sins. Let's just pause there. You read that in about 700 B.C.? And that should spark some hope in you. That should spark some encouragement in you. Really? You mean this suffering that we're going through, it's coming to an end? Yes. Yes, because, because there's peace coming. Because God is going to do something about the sin that has separated you from him. And if you take that illustration of Israel and you, and you translate it forward into our lives, you can see where, where Jesus' second covenant offers the same hope and the same promise of peace. He says, look, I know every single person is a sinner. It says in one passage that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that means all, all, everybody. There's nobody out there who, who isn't by their own affinity rebellious towards the authority of God. We all want to live the way we want to live. And the consequences of that are, are a much more difficult life than God ever intended us to live. He wants for us to prosper and thrive. That's his heart. And yet we reject that. And yet God comes in and says, I know you, and I'm going to make a way where there seems to be no way. I'm going to bring peace into your life because I'm going to bring a mediator into your life who can bring about a reconciliation so that you can experience the fullness of my love and that manifestation of, of, of the peace that goes beyond understanding. And so he speaks that, but, but the prophet doesn't stop there. The prophet continues, and then he says, listen. It's the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. That's how he ends his prophecy. The Lord has spoken. This is God talking. This means it has authority. This means it has weight. This means that you can rely on it. Now, 
we read that as Christians, and many of us, myself included, we automatically associate John the Baptist with this message, right? Because John the Baptist came before Jesus' birth, and he, he basically said, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent, make straight the paths. This was essentially his, his life's theme, was to preach this message. And so he was challenging the people of Israel to experience a revival before the birth of Jesus. But I would, I would say this. It is not inappropriate to say that the Spirit of God is taking this same passage and he's speaking into Christians, into our hearts here in the 21st century and saying that the return of Jesus is coming. We don't know the day and hour we'll get into that, but that we should prepare the way as well. And the issue then becomes that in, in the context of our lives, what does it look like to clear the way through the wilderness? What does it look like to fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills, to strengthen the curves and to, and to smooth out the rough places? What does it mean to clear, fill, level, strengthen, and smooth? What does God want us to do? Well, the answer to that question, I believe, is in the Word of God, which is why I had you turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapters 24 and 25. This is a long sermon, part of an even longer sermon. And it's specifically Jesus teaching about his own return. It's Jesus teaching on the second coming. It's not anybody else talking about his second coming, trying to interpret something for the second coming. This is Christ himself saying, before I come back, or when I come back, or because I'm coming back, here's things that you need to know. And when you consider the fact that they took two full chapters of Matthew to include this, it has some gravitas. It has some weight. And I would encourage you that, that when you leave here this morning and, and you go home this week, that you take the time to read Matthews 24 and 25 and really think about it in the context of preparing the way for the second coming, for experiencing your own Advent celebration. And so we begin to ask that question of ourselves, how do we clear and, and fill and level and straighten and smooth? And you look at Matthew's gospel, and you realize the very first thing that Christ says, he says, stay committed to the truth. And it, it says this, that Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. In the 2,000 years since Jesus' birth, there have been a lot of false doctrines that have arisen. Some have faded. Others have lingered. There's been even more, if I could call it, corruption of, of, of the gospel. People who, who were part of organizations and groups and movements that began quite correctly that deviated later. There are whole denominations now that deny the need for Jesus' death to atone for our sins. Now, he says it explicitly in the Bible. He says, you know, the reason that I'm dying is for you. It, it's there, black and white. But there are whole groups that say, you know, that's just, that's just ridiculous. Why would God kill his own son as a, as a, as in a substitutional manner for your sins? You don't need to do that. That's not really how God is. And the problem is it doesn't line up with Scripture. It doesn't line up with the Bible. And here is the issue. If we are going to stay true to truth, we have to take the truth that's revealed through the Spirit of God because it's the Spirit of God who is the author of truth and the document that the Spirit authored is the Scripture, the Holy Canon. And when we deviate from the Bible, 
to, to modern philosophical reasoning or modern theologies that run contrary to the original gospel message, we set ourselves up for failure. We move ourselves out of a secure place. We go from being the Israel of David and Solomon to being the Israel of the later centuries, which is just a mess. And there's no reason for that because he's given us our word. And that's why, that's why we've got to keep the scriptures, these scriptures at the forefront of our mind and our heart and as, as, as a path that illuminates for us to stay safe. As we prepare for the second coming, we cannot abandon the truth that has been revealed in the word. What else does he tell us to do? Next thing he says, he says to keep loving despite persecution. He says, then you will be arrested. He's talking about the future. You're going to be arrested, persecuted, and killed. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? You will be hated over all the world because you are my followers. And many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. Christians turning on Christians. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will become rampant everywhere and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. What does he mean endure? He means endure with love in your heart. There's two ways to overcome persecution. You can overcome persecution and stay sensitive to the Spirit of God, or you can overcome persecution. You can endure, but you grow bitter and angry and judgmental and, and frankly, hateful, and hateful not only towards the people who are persecuting you, but hateful towards a lot of folks. And I just want to give you an inkling. I believe that God wants to bless Christians. I believe that God wants to put us in places of influence. I believe that God wants us to thrive and prosper. However, these scriptures are not lies. They predict the future. And there is a future coming when there will be a persecution associated with following God. And you see inklings of it now. How many of you have heard about the lawsuit against Hillsdale College? Anybody even know what Hillsdale College is? Hillsdale College is a small, conservative, you know, Christian university. It's been around for since 1840-something. They receive no federal funding of any kind, none, zero. Yet they are being sued, you know, for a number of reasons, but essentially because they are a Christian university, and the people who are suing them think they're doing something good. Now, there are literally thousands of colleges and universities in our country, and in the whole bandwidth of that, there is no place for a private Christian university that, that receives no federal funds. And, and you look at that, and it, it's bound to make you angry. It should make you angry. There, there's a rather famous case of a couple of years ago in Seattle of a Christian nonprofit that what they did is hired Christian attorneys to provide free legal counsel to anybody who came in the door. Didn't have to be a Christian. You could be a Muslim. You could be a Buddhist. You could be gay. You could be straight. They didn't care. They just wanted to serve the community. And so these attorneys would, would, would now, when was the last time you paid for a lawyer? Yeah, they don't come cheap. Can I get an amen in this house? And the better they are, the more expensive they are. And so a lot of people can't afford them. And so, but these people wanted to serve the community. And they were serving the community. But they got sued because they only hired Christian attorneys. And they got shut down because they only hired Christian attorneys. And I'm like, so you stop people from serving your community for what reason? Because of your own prejudice? 
And if this kind of stuff doesn't make you angry and doesn't upset you, you're probably not human because it sure makes me angry. But the question is, what am I going to do with that anger? Am I going to live in that anger? Am I going to let it rob the joy from my life, rob the hope from my life, rob the peace from my life, turn me into a bitter person? Because the, the truth is the devil doesn't have to kill you to render you ineffective. He just has to cause you to stop loving. Because if he, stops, if he stops the church from loving the unlovable, we become ineffective and non-influential. Jesus looked at the people who were crucifying him and he said, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. That's our example. And so as we prepare for the second coming and as we begin to endure persecutions, yes, we need to pray. Yes, we need to vote. Yes, we need to get involved. Yes, we need to be more than just, you know, doormats that get stepped on. It's fine to stand up and say, no, that's wrong. I think we should be advocates, but we have to guard our hearts and make sure that we stay loving towards one another, towards people who may have walked away from us, but most importantly to the lost. That's how we prepare for the second coming. That's how we experience this Advent renaissance. And so we go to the next thing that, that I want to cover this morning. He, he talked about the fact that we've got to stay faithful to the truth. We've got to keep loving despite persecution. But the third thing is we've got to stop worrying about when and instead be watchful and faithful. Do you understand what I mean about when? When Jesus got, there's a whole bunch of people who are obsessed with when Jesus is going to come back. And, and again, why not? It sounds like it's an important subject. But, but here's what the Bible says. However, no one knows, this is Matthew 24, verse 36. No one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows. Do you really think God is going to tell us when Jesus is coming back, before he tells Jesus. Just thought I'd bring that up. Sometimes I look at us and I go, they're all obsessing on this. And I'm like, really? Do you really think that's going to happen? Because I don't think so. And, and let's just continue. Let's go down to verse 42. He says, so you two must keep watch, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Understand this. If a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar was coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You also must be ready all the time. How often should we be ready? For the Son of Man will come when least expected. And a faithful, sensible servant is one to whom the master can give the responsibilities of managing his other household servants and feeding them. Just a little encouragement to leadership. But what if the servant, I'm skipping to verse 48, but what if the servant is evil and thinks, eh, my master won't be back for a while. And he begins beating the other servants, partying, getting drunk. The master will return unannounced and unexpected. And this is where it gets, this is where it gets real. And he will cut the servant to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Turn to your neighbor and ask him, do you think he's talking about me? <laughs> No, I don't think he's talking about anybody here or anybody online. But, but, but the issue is, what is he talking about? He's telling us that, that rather than focus on, you know, I wonder if it's close. I wonder if it's close. I wonder if Jesus is coming back this year. How about let's just assume he could be here tomorrow and live accordingly for the rest of our lives. 
How about we begin to, to recognize that all of us are going to give an account of the blessings we've been given. It says, to whom much is given, much is expected. And, and again, I, I'm a grace guy. I, I'm saved by grace, not works. There's no reason I get to boast. But if I'm really going to prepare myself for the second coming, if I'm going to have this Advent experience, if I'm going to straighten and smooth and fill and all of the stuff it talks about in Isaiah, i got to read this passage in 24 Matthew and think, okay, God, am I really, am I really passionate for you? I'm 61 years old, and as I was studying for this, I got, I got to thinking. Anyway, it was kind of a, a difficult conversation I was having with myself. I said, Grace, are you as passionate for Jesus at 61 as you were at 21? Because when at 21, I was a freak. I was on fire. I was, yeah, go God, go God, go God. I, you know, whatever you want, God, whatever you want. And I was, I, man, I was all over it. Now, let's be real. I don't have the energy at 61 I had at 21. And if I laid down and rolled around the floor, I might not ever get back up. <laughs> and if I was, you know, kind of flopping around doing some of the stuff we did back then, somebody would grab a defibrillator and try to restart my heart. And several people volunteered after the first service. I wasn't sure what that was all about. But, but they'd go, let's just try it out, you know, you know give you a couple of little jolts. And again, I, I recognize that, and seasons change. When you have small children, and sleep becomes you know, a, a concept rather than an actuality, and you're completely exhausted, it's going to take some of your passion, but in the midst of being a, a, a parent of young children, how passionate for Christ are you? How, how anticipatory do you live your life? Are you thinking about, you know, man, I'm good if Jesus comes back. What about if you're single? Well, you know, you, life doesn't begin until you find a spouse. That's a lie. Come on now. I, I was really on fire for Christ when I was single. I, you know, but, but what if you're a newlywed? What if you're just married? You know, you know, yeah, I got all these other things. What if you have a job that's demanding? Anybody have a demanding job? God knows all of these things. The issue isn't, do you look like you did 40 years ago? The issue isn't, do you do everything other people do? But the issue is, honestly... You know, are you, are you living in such a way that, that you wouldn't be embarrassed if Jesus returned? And you do have to acknowledge if you're in leadership at a company or a business or a nonprofit or a pastor, do you use your leadership and influence to bless others or are you just trying to kind of take care of you? That's an interesting question for anyone, but particularly a person in a pulpit. Something to think about. And so we have that. We have that, that, that reassurance that we should quit worrying about when Jesus comes back, but instead be watchful and faithful. And then we transition into chapter 25. And in chapter 25, he opens with the story of the 10 virgins. You're all familiar with the story. Some of you may or may not be. And in this parable, Jesus said there were 10 virgins who were waiting for a bridegroom. And, and of the ten virgins, how many were wise? Oh, come on. You guys know the Bible. How many of the ten virgins, how many were wise? I'll ask the worship team. They've all been in church. <laughs> okay. How many was it? And I'm cheating. I'm, I knew there was something wrong with your hair. So it's five. There was five wise and, and, and there were five foolish. And the point of this parable is this, that if, if we are wanting to prepare the way for Christ, for his second coming, we have to stay prepared. Because essentially he's saying five of these virgins were ready to meet their mate, five were not. 
Now, now, what was evidence of being wise? What did the wise virgins do that the unwise virgins didn't? Oil. They, they kept their oil lamps filled. Thank you, Sarah. God bless you. Yeah. And she grew up in our Sunday school. <laughs> you know, and they kept their wicks trimmed and all that. Now, oil is symbolic of what in the Bible, typically? The Holy Spirit. I would, I would tell you that, that if you want to be prepared, you got to stay full of the what? The Holy Spirit. You need to be filled with his presence. You need, do you honestly think you can stay ready to meet Christ on your own? You're chuckling as well you should. I know you, Tamara. No, that's, that's, it's, it's good. you're not going to be able to meet Christ effectively on your own. You've got to live with the Spirit of God because what he calls us to do is impossible without him. He challenges us to do stuff that, frankly, I don't want to do. It goes back to that original cause of the separation. I don't want to live like God wants me to live. I want to live like Reese wants to live. And they're not always the same. But with the Spirit's help, he gives me not only the ability, but he gives me the desire to submit to God's leading. I need more of the Spirit of God. You know, I was on a sabbatical for five weeks, and I was also, you know, out on Wednesday nights. And I can't tell you how refreshing it was to return back on a Wednesday night and to spend an hour on, on space and place just, you know, soaking in the presence of God. And there's a lot of things happening on Wednesdays. We've got all kinds of, of classes and things, and Wednesdays at Encounter are kind of fun. But just, just I noticed a difference in my soul just by taking that hour once a week to, to play that soaking music. And I know not everybody can come, but what are you doing to stay filled with the Spirit? The Bible talks about you know, praying in the Spirit, you know, all of those things. I believe very strongly in, in praying in tongues. And at the end of the service, if you would like to receive the gift of tongues, I think you can. I really do. And we'll have intercessors up here to pray with you for just that. But, but hear me. It's vital. It's vital if we're going to stay prepared to stay filled with his spirit, to stay soaking in his spirit, to, to simply say, you know, fill me, Lord. Fill me. Fill me, God. Not in a, not in a weird, hokey way, but, but just in a sincere crying out of, 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 of a person who says, God, I want to be ready to meet you. And I'm not unless I'm filled with you. And that's why it's so critical for us to pursue that. And so we, we see this. We, we, we see this, this whole dissertation of Jesus over these two chapters that, hey, man, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. And if you want to be ready for me when I come back, you need to stay faithful to truth. You need to, you know, you, you need to not let the persecution that you're going to experience take you out of a place of love and, and move you to a place of bitterness. You need to quit worrying about when and live like it could be any day. Stay faithful. Stay focused. And you need to be prepared because you've got to be filled with the Spirit. But then he continues in chapter 25 and, and flows through with this. And, and he begins to talk about... What's going to happen when he does come back? He says when he comes back, he's not coming back alone. It says when he returns in verse 21 or 31, pardon me, he's going to come in glory and all the angels are going to come with him. And he will sit upon his glorious throne and the nations will be gathered in his presence. He's going to separate some. He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. He's going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous. And then he's going to look at the righteous, the ones he declares to be righteous, and he's going to say some things to them. 
The king will say this to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. And they respond, Lord, when do we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison or visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Contextually, it's absolutely correct to say that he's talking about what kind of community the body of Christ should be. Contextually, he's saying that, you know, yes, I expect all believers to work. You know, we have laborers in the kingdom of God. We don't have loafers in the kingdom of God. All right? But, and he's saying that. You ought to care one for another. The Bible says that you should be concerned not only for your own needs, but also the needs of others. You should love others. You, sh- you, should, you should serve people who are, who are you know, struggling, because that's, that's, what, that's what people who love one another do. That's what people who are in unity do. But contextually, he's also talking about the people out there. Because you've got to link it back to this whole thing of keeping love in your heart. Of not growing bitter in the persecution. And he really is challenging the church. Are we going to share Jesus and love to our city and world? Wherever our city is. Is that how we're going to live? And, and again... Is it true that how we treat the weakest and least deserving reflects how much we appreciate the peace and grace that God has extended to us? If I take a look at how I treat the least of these, it shows how much I value the free gift of grace that has been shed into my life, how much I value what he did for me at Calvary, how much I appreciate the fact that I am not afraid to face my Savior because he's declared me righteous, not of works so that I won't boast, but purely by his grace. And that when I understand that and understand the depth of his love for me, it, it, it compels me to want to go out and share that love with others. And I would challenge us as, as Christians during the holiday season, this is probably the easiest four weeks of the year in which we can do ministry to the least of these. There's all kinds of opportunities. You know, yesterday we had one over at Shiloh House. Lots of you volunteered. I appreciated you, appreciated seeing you. Uh, my own son stayed there. I was proud of him. And, and it was a great day. And we served. There's another day coming up on the 16th. And, and you can get involved. You just go to the Iron Sharp uh, website. You can follow the, the, the clicks or the QR codes. And we'll, we'll, you can actually go to my Facebook page because there's a link on there from a couple of days ago. You can get involved. But there are other ways. There's, there's a Salvation Army. There's, there's the, the things we're doing to share for the, 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 the foster kids. There's getting involved you know, with Sim and Linda and what they're doing there. But, but the point of this is, it, it's not optional. If we really want to prepare the way, we got to minister to people. And that's not burdensome. That's not, that's not some kind of, well, you got to make up for your sin by doing this. No, it's because we recognize what he's done for us. We give because he first gives to us. And so we, we come to the end of 
this, this revelation of, you know, the, the promise of peace. And we look at this Advent candle, and I challenge us to let it be a metaphor for embracing a lifestyle of serving others. God has made peace between us and him through the mediation of the life of Jesus Christ. Let us work to bring peace between God and the lost by serving them and taking up our cross and working out our salvation, even as the Lord has instructed. I encourage you again to, to read Matthew 24 and 25. Read it in the context of the Advent season. Read it in the context of how do we prepare for the return of Christ. And let it minister to you. What is God speaking to you? Maybe, maybe there's some, some re-embracing of truth that you need to get this Christmas season. Maybe it's been a while since you broke the pages of your Bible, read the scriptures, let them read you. Maybe you've become bitter and angry at all the ridiculous things that are happening out there to Christians, not just in America, but around the world, rather than staying soft and pliable. And perhaps your focus has been on things that don't really matter rather than back on really being a, a faithful servant who's full of the Holy Spirit so that you can share the Spirit who looks out and says, you know, God, God, here I am, send me. Help me to minister to others as you have ministered to me. Let's pray. Father, help us to respond. The word is a light. It shows a way. But we have to walk in it. You won't make us, you won't make us follow you. You never have. You've just said, come, come and I will show you a better way. That's what Advent's all about, Father, as we, as we remember that you shall return. You will come back. But will you find faith on this earth? That was your question, and so we ask ourselves that. Will we stay people of faith, people of truth, people of love, people of service? Help us, God, to, to step into that, to, to be fully prepared to receive you whenever it is that you come back. Give us the desire. Give us the strength to follow you. We want to be Israel as you intended, not Israel as it became. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Encounter Church, visit ecdenver.org or find us on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram.